This is it, which means this is the most important lesson that you are ever going to hear today. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, but we are wrapping up a series that we've been looking at over the course of the last month. We've titled this series, Doing God's Business, God's Way. We're looking specifically at how we do ministry at Mission Road Bible Church. If you didn't grab one on the way in, there are handouts in the back. We'll be walking through our fourth and final lesson on doing God's business, God's way at MRBC. Pastor Myra opened this series in week one, and he looked at the necessity of word ministry for doing ministry. There is a necessity of the prominence of God's word if we are going to do God's business God's way. Now, when we say God's business, I believe God's word teaches that salvation is ultimately God's business. Also, that sanctification is ultimately God's business. Said another way, you and I cannot manufacture either of those things. We are powerless to save ourselves. We are powerless to sanctify ourselves. That work is God's work. That business is God's business. Left to himself, man can neither save nor sanctify himself. And Pastor Myra walked through the theological reason that that is the case. Because of the depravity of man, because of the effects of the fall, we are powerless. We are depraved. We can't do anything. We cannot save or sanctify ourselves. We are desperately reliant upon God. Nevertheless, for the work of ministry towards God's end of saving and sanctifying souls, God has given us two resources. And Pastor Myra will walk through these in that first week. He's given us a resource in hand and a resource in heart. The resource in hand is the word of God. The resource in heart is the spirit of God. I'm going to read a quote at the top of your handout. Again, this is review from week one. Dr. George Zemeck, this study is actually primarily taken from a book that he wrote titled Doing God's Business God's Way. And in that book, he writes this. God has indeed abundantly provided divine resources for us to do his business his way. These are his special weapons for true spiritual warfare. Our tangible weapon in hand is the word of God. And our intangible weapon is the person of the spirit of God himself. Spiritually considered, these divine nuclear weapons are not optional, but absolutely necessary for ministry. Watch this. The effectual dynamic of the Spirit of God working with the Word of God alone can save and sanctify sinners. That last line is, is crucial. It's fundamental to everything that we've said in this study. True change, true change only comes by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God. Those are, that, those are the tools that God has given us for the work of ministry. That is how he affects, it's God's business, and the way that he affects true change is by his Spirit, through his Word. That content, that theological content that Pastor Myra covered in week one is a biblical philosophy of ministry. When we talk about our philosophy of ministry at Mission Road Bible Church, those are the theological conclusions that lie under a biblical philosophy of ministry. Those theological conclusions are very important because in ministry, your theology drives your methodology. 
Said another way, what you believe determines how you act. At Mission Row Bible Church, there are theological convictions that lie beneath how we do ministry the way we do ministry, how we promote discipleship, how we evangelize, how we do God's business of seeking to see souls saved and sanctified. In weeks two and three, Pastor Aaron and James walked us through the ramifications of that philosophy of ministry, that theology that determines our methodology. Pastor Aaron and James walked through what that looks like, specifically in discipleship and in evangelism. Discipleship is the administering of biblical truth because it's the spirit of God through the word of God that affects lasting change. Discipleship is administering biblical truth to one another in encouragements and conversation and discussions and life on life and so on and so forth. James talked through evangelism and, and the reality of those theological conclusions on how we evangelize. Evangelism is not gimmicks. It's not rationally convincing someone into the kingdom of God. That misunderstands man's core problem. It's proclaiming biblical truth, administering the word of God, and trusting the spirit of God to work change. It's proclaiming biblical truth and praying hard. Well, today we come to this third application of that biblical philosophy of ministry. Today, we're going to be talking about what those theological convictions mean for the teaching ministry in the church. Okay, so what do those theological conclusions mean for the teaching ministry in the church? Now, I want to recognize the fact that you all are here right now means that in some sense, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. You value the teaching ministry, and you demonstrate that in your presence at things like this. And yet, I also want to acknowledge that sometimes it's easy to fall into habits of doing these kind of ministry things and lose sight of why we do them, lose sight of the theology that underlines why we do ministry the way that we do ministry. It's easy for us to fall into those things. So I hope that this functions as a reminder to why we do ministry and specifically this morning, why we teach and preach the way that we do at Mission Road Bible Church. Okay, so as we move on in our handout to that second main point, we're going to see uh, what a biblical philosophy of ministry results in in regards to a teaching ministry in the church. The second point in your outline says this, a biblical philosophy of ministry results in a high priority of teaching, a high priority of teaching. I want us to note two things in here that I believe God's or the theological convictions that flow from God's word should drive us to prioritize in ministry. The first is that church leadership should prioritize teaching in the structure and work of ministry in a specific local church. The way that leaders set up ministry needs to flow from a high priority on teaching. Now remember, considering our problem, the unbeliever's problem, he has a sin problem that renders him powerless to embrace God. It is the spirit of God through the word of God that can change that. The believer still has a sin problem. He has been changed. He has been made new and yet is still battling flesh, still dealing with what we called a sin hangover. Even though there's been, even though there's been forgiveness, even though there's been a, a new man, a new spirit, a new identity that's given, there's still a sin problem. And it is God's word administered faithfully even to the believer. The spirit works through that to effect lasting change. If that is true, and at our church, we believe that it is. If that is true, then our only hope 
is in proclaiming biblical truth. That's how God sanctifies sinners in the proclamation of biblical truth. Therefore, church leadership should prioritize teaching in ministry structure and content. Now, this begins in the Old Testament. We're going to focus primarily on some New Testament texts here. When Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples, he calls them to go and to make disciples and to baptize them. We've talked about baptism at other times during this hour. Baptism is an entry point into the local church. Jesus commanded that the the disciples are made, that they are baptized into the church, but that is not the end of the great commission. The great commission is not completed with those two steps. Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That command, the individuals would be taught to obey God's word. Where does that work itself out? In the local church, there is very much an order to the Great Commission. Disciples are made, they're baptized into the church, and then they are taught to obey all that God has commanded them, all that Jesus has commanded We're going to look at a few specific texts. You're welcome to turn there. I want to draw our attention first to Acts chapter 6. We'll be looking at lots of different texts this morning. If you want to try to track along, Acts chapter 6. This is early in the history of the church. And there are leaders in the church in Jerusalem that are struggling to know where their priorities should go as leaders overseeing the work of ministry. Church is growing. There's lots of logistical needs that are arising. And so we read this in Acts chapter 6, verse 2. So the 12, the disciples, summoned the congregation of the disciples, and they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we, the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So early on in the church's history, you have this dilemma that faces the apostles where they're saying, okay, our our energies are limited. Where should we prioritize where leaders should focus in ministry that's happening in the church? Now, there's lots of good, important, and faithful ministry happening in the church in Jerusalem. The serving of tables, fellowship, uh, life on life, body life stuff is happening. But the leadership of that church says, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so there are going to be other individuals that are raised up to help facilitate the wonderful body life that we heard about earlier in this study that that needs to be happening. But there is a priority. There's a priority that Acts chapter six teaches us. A priority in ministry on the leadership, placing an emphasis on what the church is being taught. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, I'll reference this several times this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is giving Timothy instructions for how he must faithfully conduct himself as a pastor in his church. And he charges him with this. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Timothy is charged explicitly in the last words in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, to make sure he is devoting himself to the preaching of the word. He is to pay careful attention, Paul tells Timothy, to his teaching. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Timothy is told that he's to show himself approved by rightly dividing the word of truth. That is exegeting God's word. 
parsing it out, working through the nuances of biblical truth, rightly dividing God's word. Paul says, Timothy, that is of utmost priority for you. Church leadership should prioritize teaching in how they, in how they structure ministry because it is only through the word of God, by the spirit of God, that lasting change occurs. Not only should church leadership prioritize teaching, but the church body, the next point in your handout, the church body should also prioritize teaching. If you're still in Acts, I want you to look at Acts chapter two. This is the beginning of the first church, the church in Jerusalem. Peter has just preached a gospel message. Many individuals have come to repentance. We're told immediately after Peter's words, he calls them to be saved from this perverse generation in Acts chapter two, verse 40. We're told in verse 41 that those who received his word, that is belief, they repented. Those who received his word, they were baptized. They were baptized into the church. We're told that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Mass revival at Pentecost as a result of Peter's sermon. I want us to observe what it is that the church naturally does after repentance and baptism, being baptized into the church. What do they naturally do? Look at verse 42. They, the church... Those 3,000 were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I mean, there are four just crucial elements of faithful body life listed in Acts 2.42, and it came naturally to the first church. As a result of their repentance, of their salvation, they are immediately, we're told, devoting themselves to a list of things here, to the apostles' teaching. The natural reflex of the believer who has been saved is to immediately devote themselves to being, great commission again, to being instructed to obey all that Jesus commands. They're immediately submitting themselves, devoting themselves to that. Also to fellowship, to body life, to discipleship, where we're administering biblical truth to one another, to the breaking of bread. I, I believe that that's a reference to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. So those four things, the church immediately devotes themselves to it, but I want us to observe that there's an immediate reflex of giving attention to the church's teaching. The church body should prioritize teaching. I want us to lay eyes on 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for just a moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we see the call for the church body to prioritize teaching Paul gives a, a description of what happened at this church in Thessalonica. Look at verses 10 through 13. Paul writes this, he says, you are witnesses and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring, all of those teaching terms, imploring you, each one of you as a father with his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul says, we came amongst you, we taught, we encouraged, we implored, just like a father with his child. It was all in the direction that you would walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We taught you, look at verse 13. Paul says, for this reason, 
we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Paul says, I'm praising God that when we came and we did the work of ministry among you, we taught you that you heard our teaching and you received it because you saw it not merely as the words of men. You saw it as a revelation of the very words of God. Teachers taught and the church prioritized it. That's what happened in the early church. And Paul is thanking God for it. Paul gives thanks that the church receives of the teaching uh, that, was, that was administered to them. He does this many times. We don't have time to turn to them all, but Paul regularly opens a book by just saying, I'm praising God that you received biblical truth the way that you did. He opens the book of 1 Thessalonians that way, praising God that this church responded in submission to the proclamation of biblical truth. He opens the book of Colossians that way, praising God that when they heard the word, they received it, they embraced it because of the Spirit's work in their hearts. The teaching of the local church, the teaching of the local church was the lifeblood of the believer. It was the lifeblood of the believer. It's not to say that other things are unimportant, but that in the very fulfillment of the Great Commission, the disciples are to receive of the teaching of their local church. If we are to do God's business, God's way, it requires that we're saying it is by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, that lasting change is accomplished. It's His work. What we can do is preach the Word, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. We preach the word and we pray hard that God would affect lasting change. I believe that God has established the teaching in your local church as the primary biblical input for the spiritual growth of believers. God has established the teaching in your local church as the primary biblical input for the spiritual growth of believers. Now, you may not recognize it or not, but that's a, that's a fairly strong statement. I'll say it again. I believe that God has established the teaching in your local church as the primary biblical input for the spiritual growth of believers. Now, you may hear that and think, wait a second, what about my Bible? I have a Bible. I have access to God's word. Shouldn't that be my primary point of input for my spiritual growth? We have an amazing privilege, an amazing privilege of having Bibles. Many of you walked into church today with a Bible in your hand. Many of you have quick access to God's word on your phone. And that is an amazing, amazing blessing. But I want us to recognize something. For most of history, this was not the case. For most of history, this simply wasn't possible. People didn't walk into church with a Bible under their arm. It, this is a historical anomaly. The idea that we would possess our own Bibles, have access to God's word at any time that we want it. This is a historical anomaly in the last like 200 years that this was just a, a regular occurrence. That is an amazing blessing. I want you to hear me clearly this morning. It is an amazing blessing that we have access to God's word. But we need to have our guard up in the midst of that against the error of individualism. There's an error that can easily leak in because we have such unrestricted access to God's word, which is a blessing, but there is an error of individualism that can easily take over where we begin to believe 
all I need is me and my Bible. That's individualism, and it's foreign to the church as it's taught in the Bible. There is a wonderful doctrine that is, should be precious to every one of us, and that is the priesthood of the believer, that we have individual access to God, that we don't need to go through a, a priest like was required in the Old Testament. We have individual access of God because of the perfect work of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Priesthood of the believer is an important and wonderful and beautiful doctrine that we should all embrace. But some have wrongly taken the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer to mean I don't need to be taught. I don't need another sermon. Me and my Bible is what I need to grow. And if that's true, here's what I want us to recognize. If that's true, then spiritual growth was impossible for most of church history. If that's true, spiritual growth was impossible for most of church history. Believe that there is no more important information, no more important information that you hear every week than the content that you are receiving from this pulpit if you're in this church or from another pulpit if you're in another church on Sunday morning. This isn't just me saying, Pastor Rick is the greatest preacher to ever walk the earth. I would say this of any church, that the most important content that you are receiving is the instruction that you are receiving in the context of your local church. When we were talking, we've been talking for the last several weeks about singing and, and that ministry of song and music in the context of the local church. And Pastor Rick helpfully pointed out that the idea of like individually singing worship songs on the radio or the access that we have to music now is, is, is a, recent, it's a recent phenomenon. When we can start to accomplish some of what we do corporately in music ministry in your own on the car because of the access that we have, because of the technology that arises today, something deep and important is undermined. We quickly lose sight of the congregational role of singing and worshiping God together through song. And I think the same type of thing can happen to preaching and teaching. I believe there's no more important information that you hear every week than the content that you are receiving on Sunday morning. Now, the question is, why is this the case? Why is the teaching in the local church the central lifeblood of content for the growth of believers? The answer may feel a bit dissatisfying to you, but I believe this is what God's word teaches. The answer is because that's how God chose to operate. The answer is because that's how God chose to set up his church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, Paul says this. He, God, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give those individuals? for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Paul says, God has set up teaching ministry within the church for the ultimate goal of shaping the church into the image of Christ. 
John Calvin writes these words on that text. He says, no language more highly commendatory of the ministry of the word could have been employed by Paul than to ascribe it to this effect, to the maturity of every man. What is more excellent, Calvin says, what is more excellent than to produce the true and complete perfection of the church? And yet this work, so admirable and divine, is here declared by the apostle to be accomplished by the external ministry of the word. Calvin is saying that God has established that it is through the teaching of the local church that the church would be set up for growth, for equipping, for the work of maturity that, often, that ultimately results in Christ-likeness. Calvin goes on to reference fanatics. who He calls them fanatics. He says this. He references these fanatics who imagine that to them, the private reading of scriptures is enough, that they have no need of the ordinary ministry of the church. Calvin corrects that thinking with these words. He says, if the edification of the church proceeds from Christ alone, he surely has a right to prescribe in what manner the church should be edified. Those who neglect or, or despise this order choose to be wiser than Christ. Woe to the pride of such men, unquote. It is wrong to say that God commanded teaching in the local church because the printing press didn't exist in that day. It is wrong to say that that was just a temporary design until we could all become self-sufficient with our own access to God's word. God designed his church to function around the teaching of his word. I want you to hear these words from John Piper. It's at the bottom on the second page of your handout. John Piper says this. God himself has determined that Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit will get more glory through the Christ-exalting, spirit-dependent, word-saturated, mutual ministry in the church than he would if people only read their Bibles rather than needing to hear other teachers speak the word into their lives. That's the bottom line. Christ is more glorified through doing it God's way than by forsaking God's way while presuming to love the Bible. What Piper is saying is that if we, in a love for God's word, which I believe is a benevolent desire, in love for God's word, turn our backs on the teaching in a local church because me and my Bible is enough. He's saying you are presuming to use Calvin word, Calvin's words to be wiser than Christ. Or Piper says that you believe your ways are better than Christ's ways. Now, hear me clearly this morning. A love for the word will lead to a hunger and reliance on the word that wants more of it. Praise God that we can study our Bibles. Praise God that we have access at any moment to open the inspired and errant word of God and read and study it. If you love something, you want more of that thing. And I believe if we love God's word, we will read God's word. So hear that clearly. If we love God's word, we will study God's word. This is why Pastor Rick regularly says, this is the read your Bible more sermon because a love of God's word will result in a pursuit of God's word. What we're talking through this morning is not a question of one or the other. Should I read God's word or should I pay attention to teaching? It's a question of priority. And biblically, I believe that the priority is upon the teaching that is in the local church. In my opinion, Teaching, the priority on teaching in the local church is at an all-time low. 
I think in our day, the priority on teaching in the local church is in an all-time low. I think there's two primary reasons for that. One is that we have our own Bibles, a blessing, but it does have this ramification. Two is that we have access to listen to whatever preacher we want. In a day that's filled with, there have been celebrity preachers through all history, but you used to try, have to travel across the nation to go find them. You used to maybe hear them once every couple of years or something like that. In our day, we have access to develop these preachers that we may like more than the instruction we get in our local church. And so we'll show up for church because we know that's important, but really the one feeding my soul is this pastor of this church in another location, and that's dangerous. I have no problem with you having an affinity for a certain preacher. I recommend you move and go attend their church. I love there's a quote by Mark Dever, where someone approaches him and says, you know, I've just loved your preaching. I want you to disciple me. I want to hear your voice more regularly. And he says, I'd be happy to do that. All you have to do is move to Washington, D.C. The emphasis should be on the instruction that you're receiving from your local church. I've benefited from hearing sermons from other preachers. I've quoted other pastors this morning. This is not the, we hear no voices outside of this walls. It's a question of priority. It's a question of priority. Okay. A biblical philosophy of ministry results in a high priority on teaching. That results in the church leadership prioritizing teaching. That results in the church body prioritizing teaching. Let's turn over our handout and look at the second half of this emphasis this morning. We'll move quickly through this. I want us to note that a biblical philosophy of ministry, if we are desperately reliant on the word of God through the spirit of God to effect lasting change, then a biblical philosophy of ministry results in a careful methodology for teaching. Said another way, it's not just that we teach that matters. Your philosophy of ministry influences how you teach. And, and make no mistake, the way that we teach at Mission Road is not just because that's Pastor Rick's habit. The way that we teach at Mission Road is rooted in theological convictions about biblical truth. Now, I want to be clear, the Bible does not say this is what sermons should look like. The Bible does not give us that kind of nuanced instructions about what ser how sermons should be shaped or something like that. But your philosophy of ministry... Those theological convictions, they influence how you teach. If you believe that man's only hope in salvation and sanctification is in the proclamation of biblical truth and that the Spirit of God uses that to effect lasting change, then you should proclaim that truth in a particular way. I'm going to list some things here. The first, and the careful methodology for teaching, is that the topic of teaching should be biblical texts, which makes sense, right? If our only hope is in the Word, and teaching is placed as a priority in the local church, then the content of that teaching should be the word. It should be biblical text. Again, 2 Timothy, Timothy was told, preach, not broadly, preach the word. Preach the word. A sermon is not something that the pastor just merely feels the need to say. It is an explanation of God's word. It is an explanation and application of biblical texts. We practice at Mission Road Bible Church what is called expository preaching. It means this. We explain what the text says. We explain what the text means and why it matters how to apply it, how to embrace it. Explaining what, it, the text is what's central. It's about the text. We explain what it says, what it means, and why it matters. The topic of teaching should be biblical texts. 
if you're hearing sermons and there's good things that are said, but you're not exactly clear on like where those good things are coming from, then perhaps that preacher is starting to lose sight of the actual grounds upon which he's communicating. He stands upon God's word. He explains God's word and applies God's word. The topic of teaching should be biblical texts. Let's go further. The goal of teaching should reflect the text's goal. The goal of teaching, second subpoint here, the goal of teaching should reflect the text's goal. There is a purpose, a main point behind every passage in God's word. Nothing in God's word is meaningless. It's all aimed at something. It's all intended to accomplish something. It's all meant to communicate something. And when, a, when teaching is taking place, the goal of explaining a text is that you would reflect, we're gonna use the word reflect for the next three points here, that you would reflect the text goal. The goal is not to read the text and then have something that you want to say that you're using the text as a launching point to get to what you really want to say. That often happens. But the goal of a sermon is to reflect the text goal. We refer to this as identifying the authorial intent, the author's intention in writing down those words. Under the inspiration of the divine author, God himself, a human author, wrote down specific words with a specific intent. And as we are explaining God's word, our goal is to reflect the goal of the text, the main point, the emphasis of the text. Part of the job of a preacher is to identify the main point the central message of a text. A sermon is about what a text is about. Some use a text to jump into something that they want to talk about. But the goal, the goal of teaching should reflect the text goal. Let's look at another one point C. The content of teaching should reflect the text content. So again, I told you I'd reference this a lot. The content of teaching, the content of preaching is to be the word itself. It's not to reference that and then talk about other things. Preach the word. Explain the word. Apply the word. The content of teaching reflects the text content. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 8, we're told of Ezra's teaching of the law to the people as they're regathering in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the law. Ezra opens the book from the law. We read this in Nehemiah chapter eight, verse eight. They read from the law. They read from the book rather, from the law of God, translating it or explaining it to give the sense so that the people understood the reading. What was happening in Nehemiah is Ezra is opening the word and he's reading it and he's explaining it. He's translating it to them. He's helping them to understand the sense of what is communicated in the word. That's biblical preaching, biblical teaching, explaining the word. The content that fills a sermon should reflect the content that is in the text. I'll just say the way that we handle preaching and teaching in Mission Road Bible Church is that more or less, we tend to move pretty slowly. That's not a shot at Rick. There's actually theological reason for that. We believe that God's word is all inspired, every letter. We believe that the tense of the verb matters. It's not just generally getting at something important. It's specific. Every word inspired and inerrant. That means there's value 
in every detail of God's word and we should devote our attention to it. A ramification of that is that you tend to move a little bit slower because you see glory in the details of the text. There's theological reasons behind that. It's not to say that if someone preaches a book in one sermon that that's wrong. I'm doing that in our student ministry right now. It's not wrong. It's to say that there's reason that we often move slowly through God's word. There's theological conclusions that drive that methodology. The content of a sermon should be the content of the text. Whenever I pull up a, uh, you ever pull up a recipe online and you want, I'm not referencing just like a manual cookbook. I'm referencing online recipes where you get there, you want another recipe to make something, but there's like 47 paragraphs of scrolling that you have to do before you get to the recipe itself. Young people, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes? Okay, so, so when, you're there, when I'm there, when I'm trying to make something, which is rare, but when I'm trying to make something and I pull up that recipe, I'm immediately saying like, all I want is the recipe. All I want is the recipe. And I'm scrolling through all this, these personal stories and illustrations and junk to get to why I'm there. The goal of preaching is that. The goal of preaching is to reflect the text content. Like you shouldn't have an experience in preaching where you're like, okay, he's been talking and talking and talking, but like, what is this? What, when are we gonna get to what matters here? The goal, the, the content of teaching reflects the text content. And that should be evident consistently through the work of preaching and teaching in the church. That's why we do it the way we do it at Mission Road. Lastly, number four here, the structure of teaching should reflect the text structure. The structure of teaching should reflect the text structure. Communication always has structure. God's word is communicated with structure. And when I believe what we believe at Mission Road, and this directly impacts how we do preaching and teaching, you'll see it this morning, is that the structure of the text the structure of the sermon, rather, is a reflection of the structure of the text. The fact that we use outlines every morning in a sermon, that's not random. Pay attention this morning in Rick's sermons. What you will see as he is giving his outline is that he is explaining to you the structure of the text itself. You'll see it in this sermon that if you're in first service, you've already seen that. Those weren't just three creative points that Pastor Rick came up with. It's not what it is. It is a reflection of the very structure of the text. There is perhaps a command in the text and then a reason for the command. That's going to influence how the sermon itself is shaped and structured. So the structure of teaching should reflect the, the, the text structure. You see in those last three points that there's reflection happening in every one of those. The sermon is a reflection of the text. Now, the reason that we do ministry that way in this church is because our only hope is in that text. God has designed that in his church, that text is taught. And so what we want to do in seeking to do God's ministry, God's way, is say, we're gonna teach that. We're gonna teach that text. Our structure is gonna flow from that structure. Our content's gonna flow from that content. Our goal is gonna flow from that goal. It's easy to be in the practice of life and ministry in Mission Road and be like, I know that we do this every week, but I'm not really sure why. And the goal of this study was to give us all a little bit of context for why we do ministry the way that we do ministry. Why do we do discipleship and care groups and body life the way that we do it? Why do we promote evangelism the way that we do? Why do we preach and teach the way that we do? You've heard in recent weeks why we sing and 
have that music ministry the way that we do, and it is all rooted in a biblical philosophy of ministry because we believe that true change, true change only happens by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. Our attention has been directed at faithfully administering that Word because that is our tool in hand. But there's another piece. Even if we preach faithfully, we cannot manufacture spiritual growth. We are desperately reliant on the Spirit of God. And that is a whole other sermon series in which faithful ministry really requires two steps. You administer the word and you pray hard. You administer the word and you pray hard because it is only God's spirit through the word that affects lasting change. So let's redevote ourselves and re-understand together why it is that we do these things the way that we do them. And let's remember to pray hard for the salvation of souls and the sanctification of souls as we submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and the opportunity that we have corporately to learn from it together. Help us to devote ourselves to it like the early church did, to devote ourselves to teaching, to fellowship, to discipleship, to evangelism, to the ministry of your word. And Father, we ask that you would work mightily in the midst of it to do your business, saving and sanctifying souls. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen.